Good morning, friends. Glad to see you here today. Thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, I'm glad uh, especially that Dev and Wayne are here because you guys, and actually Kyle too. Hi, Kyle. How's it going? Because uh, you might be able to identify a little bit with uh, my story this morning. I want you to think about one of the most frustrating experiences of your life. Now, granted, there have been a few, I'm sure. Um, please don't look at anyone or point to anyone when I ask you to do this right now. That would just be unkind, and we are about being graceful here. <clears throat> I've told you uh, before that my first car was a 1966 Mustang that had sat at the side of my parents' uh, house for about uh, 12, 13 years before I started driving it. Now, the fun thing about old cars is that you can do most of the work on them yourself. Uh, and there was a guy just down at the end of the street who had restored several cars, and so somehow I introduced myself to him or something. So if I ever had a question about what was going on, I could ask him, because my dad wasn't really much of a mechanic. Uh, so I was having a problem with the car overheating, and he came down, he looked at it, he said, well, you need to replace the thermostat. And so I was like, okay. Is this going to be expensive? He goes, no, no, it's not really expensive at all. So we, I went down to the hardware store, and I bought the thermostat. And in order to change the thermostat, you had to remove a ceramic housing from, it's, it's, it was about halfway down in the, in the middle of the front of the engine. And it, so it's, there's a bunch of stuff around it, <laughs> number one. And, and y y the, the bolts were like, down on either side, so you had to have a special wrench that looked something like this so that you could turn it. So he, he had the wrench, he let me use the wrench, he showed me how to do it. So he said, but one thing you have to be careful about, and that is when you tighten the bolts, don't tighten them too much or you'll crack the ceramic housing. I said, okay. So I take the old one off, I put the new thermostat in. You have to put all of this like goo around it to help seal it. There's a gasket that goes over it. I put it back on and then you don't know if you cracked it or not until you turn the car on. So I turn the car on and sure enough, it's leaking. I cracked the housing. So I went back to the auto parts store and I had to buy a new ceramic housing, which I think was about $12. Uh, I'm not sure where the money was coming from at the time, but it was, it was $12. So I take the ceramic housing back, pull the old one off, put the new one on, you know, slather it with goo, uh, tighten it down, turn the car on, and it's leaking. Because I cracked that one too. So I, you know, I'm wiping my hands off. I've got this like purple gunk all over my hands, and I go back to the auto parts store. That was one of four trips that day to go back and get a new ceramic housing to, and it, it didn't matter like i was trying to follow all the instructions i thought i wasn't tightening it too much and uh i kept doing it over and over again and if you've been in a situation where you keep failing at the same thing over and over and over again uh it's delightful isn't it <laughs> right i mean sometimes you have friends take pictures of you failing over and over again just so you can remember it forever um, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful experience. And at some point along the line, because you have to turn the engine on and then the leak is not obvious, so you kind of have to reach down in there to see if there's any moisture coming out. I actually took all the skin off, 
like the back of one knuckle because there's this uh, giant spinning wheel of death that is right there uh, in front of this thing that you have to reach down. So finally, I walked down to the end of the street and I was, I was defeated. I can't do it, man. <laughs> like, I have tried, I have tried. Like, I'm almost out of money. This is the last housing I can afford. Would you please just come help me? And I think he had been waiting for this particular <laughs> visit. I don't know. Man, we have all experienced some sort of failure, right? And they come in all, short, all sorts of shapes and sizes. Um, and we can all think of a time where we failed in something, and, and we can think of times where we failed in something, and ultimately it didn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, it just, it's frustrating at the time, but then it goes away. I'm sure that some of us in this room uh, failed a spelling test at some time in second or third grade, and yet here we sit as fully functioning adults, still not able to spell coffee. Maybe you try to cook something new that did not come out all that great. Some failures are easy to shake off because ultimately, ultimately they don't really carry any significant consequences. Uh, it is a failure, but you're able to just kind of move right by it. And in fact, in, in most cases, we might not even consider those things to be failures at all. Although they may technically be a failure, that word might seem like it's too much, you know. I, like, Nisha never tells me that I failed at cooking something, right? Because that's just a little bit of harsh language. She just tells me I'm a loser. So <laughs> perhaps then a definition that rings truer is that failure occurs when our inability to do something correctly or well enough actually ends up costing us something. Uh, whether it's uh, money or frustration or a relationship, for example, in most cases, if you fail to do your work correctly or if you make a mistake that can't just go away, um, these are failures that could have a direct impact on your career or your job. Uh, to further complicate things, the world has such a lofty idea of what success means professionally that if you don't meet those ideals of what successful looks like, you can feel like you failed, even though you're doing your job correctly. And we can fail in ways that are uh, much more personal. We can fail in relationships. We can fail as sons and daughters and fathers and mothers and husbands and wives. There are lots of opportunities for us to fail. Amen? And sometimes we take advantage of those opportunities. There are emotional failures that come with a great deal of baggage that all of those involved may carry forever. I mean, after all, there's a reason why the joke exists that the first time your kid goes to a therapist the therapist is going to ask them about you. <laughs> Tell me about your father and mother. Um, even when we get older and life kind of takes its course, our bodies begin to fail us, so we cannot do what we need or want to do anymore. I have arthritis in my hands, and so there are times where I can't grip things, and I have to pass the pickle jar to my wife, who will have to open it for me. With me, there was always, um, I, I don't know how you have felt about your failures in life. I mean, I know that when they happen kind of in that moment, there's, it's hard to see kind of the redeeming factor in there. Maybe, maybe after some time you can see something good. But for me, uh, there was always great embarrassment personally that I felt uh, whenever I would fail at something. And if I failed at something, then I, I didn't meet people's expectations of me. 
And if I didn't meet their expectations, then I had let them down. If I let them down, then they wouldn't respect or like me anymore. If they don't respect or like me anymore, on and on and on it goes. Now, just to be fair, not everyone is like me. Thank goodness. Some people can let things roll right off their backs, but I have never had that ability. But I think it's true that in all of us, the fear of failure exists in varying degrees. Some of us might hide it better than others, while some of us might wear it right on our sleeves or, more accurately, our faces. It is a fear that some are able to recognize and overcome, while others simply will not try something because they are afraid of failing. And it occurs to me that when it comes to the matter of faith, so much of the Christian life is lived trying not to fail, trying to do things the right way, whatever the right way may seem to us at the time. In part, uh, this is because we incorrectly believe that failure is not a part of the Christian experience. After all, we have verses like, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And if God is for us, who can be against us? So then when we fail in our faith or we fail in some way with God, it becomes so personal, you know. Like if, if God can make all good things happen, then it's my fault that this bad thing happened and God chose to not do something good through me. Have you ever felt that way before? It's a lonely feeling, feeling that way. We want to succeed as Christians, and we read those kinds of verses that give us this big morale boost. We don't want to fail because failure, after all, carries with it so much baggage. And in truth, we walk a slim line between, between what we deem success as a Christian and failure. And as much as we uh, laud the love and grace of God, we still hold on to a desire to succeed as Christians. It's why we so easily fall into the practice of comparing ourselves to others. And why we become more like some of those people in the Bible who look down on other people. It is telling to me that many Christians, as they reach the end of their lives, approach that day with great fear. Now, that's natural because they're reaching the end of their lives, but I have had too many conversations with people who have lived their lives in service to God that have said to me, I'm not sure that I did enough. And what if I'm not actually okay? I remember uh, back in Antioch, I baptized someone. He came to me one Sunday uh, with his wife, and he said, I want to be baptized, but I'm not sure I should. And so I asked him why, and he said, well, I'm afraid that once I get baptized, I'm going to sin again. So somehow, he got it into his head that once he was baptized, he was going to be what? Perfect? I tried to disavow him of that idea by relentlessly uh, mocking him and accusing him in that moment. <laughs> Today we're going to look at Romans chapter 7, which has one of my very favorite passages in all of the Bible. Um, 
And we need to remember, though, that this chapter, chapter 7, which part of chapter 7 is one of those passages from Romans that we talked about that has been pulled out to kind of stand on its own. But it happens in the context of a very specific conversation. Uh, So Paul uh, has been talking about the relationship between uh, sin, death, life, salvation, Jesus, the law, all these different things. So let's review chapter 6 really quick. What we've seen in chapter 6, number one, more grace does not lead to more sin. It is not an open-door policy where once you are forgiven by God, you can do whatever you want. Number two, in order to live a new life, the old self must die. Number three, through baptism, our old self is crucified and buried with Jesus. Number four, just as Jesus rose to new life as the victor over sin and death, we too rise as those who are no longer under the control of sin. Number five, the new life we live, we live for God and not for ourselves. So the conclusion, number six, was do not serve sin, serve God. And then at the the end uh, of that chapter, last week, we learned these things. Number one, freedom is an illusion because everyone has a master. Number two, your master is the one you serve. So if you're wondering who that is, just look at who you are serving. Number three, you get to choose who your master is. Number four, you can serve either God or sin. There are no other options. Number five, either choice comes with benefits. And number six, sin earns death. Eternal life is a gift from God. So he has taken us through this chapter where he has explained our actions. He said we have a choice. He has said all of these things. So the question we have to ask ourselves then is anytime we reach the end of a chapter, which I want you to remember that when Paul wrote this letter, there were no chapters or verses, okay? I mean, just to be fair, this is one long statement um, that those who put the Bible together have divided into chapters and verses. But we've seen this happen at the end of almost every chapter. The end of chapter, he comes to a conclusion, and then what does he do at the beginning of the next chapter? He tries to answer the incorrect conclusion that people could make from the previous chapter. Okay? So he's come through this thing about how our behavior matters, how we can choose righteousness, how we can serve God, how we are dead to sin, and all these different things. So what is the question that he thinks they're going to ask, or what statement does he thinks, what does he think they are going to say? Well, he's going to sing a familiar tune for us here. If you've been with us during this time, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter seven. We're going to start in verses one through four. The first point he wants to make. You ready? It's it's a good one. The law no longer has control over you once you are dead. Okay, has he made this point before? Yes, he does. But let's look at what he has to say here. Uh, Verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as the person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man, while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. 
But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So Paul has now entered in the midst of this discussion the let me make this as simple as possible for you category. He's already explained some of these things once, twice, maybe even three times. But he's coming back to it again. And here's the example that he uses. When a woman is married and she has sex with someone else, she has committed a sin. Why? I heard you in the back. Because the law says it's a sin. That's why she committed a sin. Because the law has declared that uh, having ad- or committing adultery is a sin, right? And so that's why she has sinned, is because she broke the law, which said this is a sin. When her husband has died and she goes on to marry someone else, has she committed a sin? No. Why? Because the law says that once she is free from her previous marriage, that she is no longer under that covenant that she made with someone else, and so she is free to go marry and live her life. So in a sense, in this person's life, when her husband died, which is a good example for us here, that law died with him. And she is not under that law anymore unless, until she marries again. So his point is what? You died to the law through the body of Christ. The law no longer has the same power over you that it once did, the power to condemn. So the law really only works in a situation where it has power over you. All it does in those situations, however, where it has power over you is condemn you. For example, just to take something from our own life, we have these uh, weird signs on the road that have random numbers on them, right? And those numbers, uh, maybe 25, 15, 30, 30, any number, uh, although you, it's only in increments of five, to be fair. Um, there, you never see a 32 mile per hour limit on the side of the road. Now, if you drive 40 in a 35, have you broken the law? Yes, why? Because the sign says 35. But if there is no sign that says 35 and you're driving 40, have you broken the law? No, right? Because that hasn't been declared there. Let's not get into too many technicalities, people, all right? What if you passed it and you just didn't see it? Come on, work with me here, all right? Tell you what, things I have to put up with you. So the law only works in a situation where it has control over you, where it says this is this or that is that. But the thing you have to realize about it is that it's not the law's fault that it only brings trouble to you, okay? It's not its fault. Let's look at verses 5 through 12. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. 
What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But pay attention to this part, okay? But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So what is he trying to tell us here? The law itself is not sinful. All it does is point out what is sinful. It's a sign on the side of the road that tells you how fast you can go. Notice that in this example that the law is not a power per se, which is kind of how he's referred to it previously in the book of Romans, but it is a tool that is used by something else to bring what? Condemnation and death, which is, of course, the penalty for sin. Condemnation and death. So we need to think about this a little bit differently, this conversation about sin, because in this context, sin in and of itself is a malevolent entity. Sin is a power. It's not, it's not Satan that is trying to influence you. It's, it's not even your own choices. Uh, sin in and of itself is working against you to reproduce itself in your life and therefore to bring death. Sin is not simply something you do or do not do. It's a force and a power working in this world. And before Jesus, sin had power over us. And it wasn't until Jesus defeated death, which is the penalty for sin, that sin's power over us was broken. But Paul makes it clear that sin itself is working underneath the surface of all things. It's not just the wrong thing that you do or the thing that you're not supposed to do. It is this living and breathing force. So let's break down how sin works in this passage to help us understand it. So basics here. The law points out that something is wrong, which in turn opens the door for sin. And the example he gives is coveting. Thou shalt not covet. And, and he makes this point, which is a really interesting one. I wouldn't have even known what coveting was if the law hadn't told me not to do it. Isn't that interesting? Because the law defines it as something negative that we shouldn't do. And Paul goes so far as to say that apart from the law, sin was dead. But what happens is the law, the individual commandment, gives life to sin. And sin takes advantage of that opportunity. It seizes the opening. And it doesn't just want to influence us to commit one sin. It wants to influence us to commit every manifestation of that sin as possible. 
It doesn't want you to just covet one thing. It wants you to explore the vast realm of coveting so that you know what coveting is all about. It goes in that opening, and once it is there, it produces more of itself. So sin is actively looking for ways to deceive you and draw you in to condemnation and to death. We used to experience this when we lived in the realm of the flesh, controlled by our sinful nature and the passions that it stirred up in us. Okay, so I think we're clear on this whole kind of model, right? Yeah? So why is it that Paul says all of this again? I mean, he's used different examples. He's come at this from different angles. Why is it that he says all of this again? Well, I think there's a good reason. He does it because chapter 6 told us that we are dead to sin, so we cannot continue to keep sinning. It told us that we have a choice of who we will serve, sin or righteousness. And here he tells us how sin is working underneath our lives. So what did Paul think his readers were going to do with all the information from chapter 6? See, it is what we do that matters. So let's determine who is right and who is wrong. Let's decide who is really following God and who is not. So Paul wants to make the point painfully clear that if you are going to rely on any set of rules to bring you closer to God, it's not going to work. If you are going to rely on any set of rules to bring you closer to God, it is not going to work, and you are going to fail. In fact, you are setting yourself up to fail by wanting to use the law to dictate these things. Paul's at peace with the relationship between grace and our actions. It's us who aren't at peace with it, who struggle with the idea of God forgiving us of all things and our actions matter because we see like somehow in our minds we believe that one sort of short circuits the other and that they can't both exist in this place and maybe that's because we're not living in reality when we think that way because what does reality say that we are under the grace of god why why do we need the grace of god because we are sinners and how weird is it that people who say, I am a sinner all the time under the grace of God, also want to live under a law that says what people can or cannot do and want that to be the rule. It's us, it's us that's having the problem with this. And, and so Paul wants his readers to understand this, that the problem is not the law, the problem is not grace. The problem is you. You are the problem to why this is or isn't working. And what is the problem that you have? It's simple. You are at war with yourself. Constantly. But guess what? Paul was at war with his self too. Let's look at verses 13 through 25. Did that which is good then become death to me? talking about the law, by no means, 
Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Now, do you understand what he's saying there? The law was used by sin. Sin existed before, but it didn't have life. But once the law pointed out what sin was, sin took advantage of the law, and it became utterly sinful, meaning it became fully realized. Where maybe once it was a concept through the law, it became a power. It became fully realized and destructive. Now, let's get to the good part. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law, at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Okay. There was a lot of doo-doos in there. I want to tell you why these particular verses are so meaningful to me. In these words of Paul, I find a meaningful and true expression of what life feels like to me. I need this connection point with him. I need to hear him saying these things because he is not only describing himself, he is describing me, and I know that others need to hear these words as well. And I want you to notice the change of tone in this passage from everything else we have read previously. Remember I told you last week that Paul was wanting to have a you know, a mental discussion. He's talking about ideas and theories. But for the first time here in the book of Romans, it becomes emotional. As he talks about himself, there is frustration, even anger with himself in these verses. So some things we need to recognize just to help put this into context for him. Paul is writing these words as someone who has already encountered Jesus. Meaning, he feels this way about himself even though he is saved by the grace of God. You get that? Why do I mention this? I mention it because 
Paul is leading a victorious life in Jesus. He is living a victorious life in Jesus. And even though that is true, he still struggles with who he is and his inability to get things right. The Apostle Paul can't get things right in his own life. In fact, he goes so far as to call himself unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Well, wait, didn't Paul say we're no longer slaves to sin? Didn't he say that when we are baptized, we die with Christ and we are raised to a new life? Yes, he said all of that. And does he believe it? Well, yes. Yes, he does. Then what is happening here? Paul has said that we are free from the control of sin, but being baptized and free from the control of sin does not mean that sin all of a sudden is going to stop influencing you. It's not like it just goes away. In fact, I might argue that sin is going to work harder on you once you have given your life to Christ. And it is his continued struggle with that influence of sin in his own life that has got him so worked up. And he says, and I get this, I really, I feel this. He says, I don't understand what's happening. He doesn't understand why he's still struggling so dramatically with sin. Or rather, you know, it's probably more true that he understands too well because he says he doesn't understand and then he tells us exactly what's happening in his own heart and mind. He knows what he is supposed to do. I mean, the guy teaches other people for crying out loud. But his sinful nature is still there, and that sinful nature is working in him, and there are too many times where he lets it win. He listens to that voice. And when it wins out, it's like he's living his old life where sin controlled him because he knows he made the wrong choice and he's mad about it. Why did I choose that? I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyway. I knew before, I knew after, and I'm going to know the next time I do it again. His sinful nature is there working on him. And if you put all these verses together, what does he realize he is doing? When he sins, he is giving sin new life. It may not have the same control as it did before through Jesus, but it is growing something in him. Paul's a failure, guys. And he hates it. He hates being a failure. He does not want things to be this way anymore, and he is powerless to do anything to stop it. He is powerless. The only thing that he's left with is this exclamation, which is the perfect ending to his thoughts. What a wretched man I am. Good gracious, I am such a loser. That's my version. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Church, I have some good news for you this morning. 
You want some good news? Good, because I've got it for you. That exclamation, while it seems helpless and a cry of failure, is quite the opposite. Because Paul was helpless, but our God is not. It is a beautiful cry because the truth is that God does save him from his failure and inability. And God does not treat him like a wretched man, but as a loved child. And God overcomes the thing in Paul's life that Paul cannot overcome himself. And if you want to love Romans chapter 8, you've got to live in Romans chapter 7. Because Romans chapter 8 doesn't say what you think it's saying if you're not living in Romans chapter 7. You hear me? So let's recap. Number one, the law is not responsible for the sin in our lives. It does allow sin to be fully realized by declaring something to be sinful. Number two, we have a sinful nature. There is a part of us that will always be susceptible to sin and its influences. Number three, sin is a power that we face, and it will take the slightest opportunity to influence us in any way that it can. Number four, once sin gets in, it produces more. Number five, as hard as we may try, we cannot outrun the influence of sin on our own. You can't run fast or far enough, my friends. But number six, Praise God, we have a Savior who overcomes our failures. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus to this messed up group of people. That we would no longer be under the mastery of sin, facing a death that we deserve. But instead, God sent His Son here to take that punishment to overcome death that we might not be such wretched people, but that we would be loved and forgiven and shown grace, a grace that we don't deserve, but which makes that grace all the more precious because of it. Thank you, God, for Jesus.